0: We're going to be in the book of James chapter 1 this morning. We're starting a new series this semester from the book of James. As I read the passage this week, I was reminded of my senior year as a mechanical engineering major at Texas A&M. Uh, a couple of whoops, maybe we got some ME majors in here. Uh, so we had, my senior year, we had to uh, do a lab research project. Uh, it was a group project, and the professor let us decide what we were going to what we were going to measure in the lab. And so I happened to be in a group, I was put in a group with several other guys who were big fishermen. I myself was not a big fisherman. I I have fished, I enjoy it, but it's not my primary hobby. But these guys, it was, it was their passion. It was what they loved to do on the weekends and every spare moment that they had. So they said, these other guys in the group, they said, for our lab research project, Let's uh, let's test the tensile strength of different brands of fishing line. So this was a purely, you know, self-motivated project for these guys in the group. So we, we got five or six different brands of fishing line, and you put them in a machine in this lab that basically would simply pull the line uh, until it snapped, and then you would measure sort of how many pounds of force it took to snap that line. They wanted to know, are the more expensive brands of fishing lines stronger? Uh, are the cheaper ones weaker like you'd expect? If I spend a lot of money, am I going to get a better fishing Wire, But the idea is, when that line uh, is pulled on by a fish, is it going to last, or is it going to snap when it's un- under sudden tension and force? Is it going to hold up, or is it, gonna, is it just going to break? And uh, interestingly, what we found, there were some fishing lines that were really expensive and well-marketed that weren't as strong as some of the cheaper lines that weren't as expensive, uh, we also found there were certain lines that they tested pretty well in the lab, but the guys who actually used them, they said, that's funny because when I take it out to fish, sometimes it'll snap in real-world conditions. Maybe if you're, if you're a fisher person, you've had that happen. right? You've had that experience. You, you get a fish on the end of the line, and you start pulling it in, and suddenly you feel the line go slack, and you pull it up. I've had this happen, and there's no hook left. The line is broken. Now, if you're a really experienced Uh, fisherman, you're going to say that's because you happened to catch the largest fish that was ever caught. That's why the line broke, right? So you're like, I was at Lake Somerville, and I know this was a 300-pound catfish that broke the line. I'm sure of it. Uh, The reality is it probably wasn't. It's probably just like a 20-pound bass or something along those lines, but you had either a weak line, or maybe the line was just nicked a little bit because it got little abrasions and and little uh, uh, attacks upon it as it was under the water. We also found there are certain lines that are susceptible to water. The strength actually diminishes in water, which is surprising because water is a regular feature of fishing. (laughs) Right? So so under lab conditions, it did okay. But in the real world, it didn't do so great. I share that this morning because as we look at the book of James, James is going to say to us that there are some Christians who are kind of like fishing lines. You might do all right in ideal conditions when you're sitting in this room and you're singing the right songs and you're hearing from the word when you're surrounded by Christian community. You might do okay in your faith when there's a lot of money in the bank account, your health is good, you've got lots of friends, everything's going well, your faith appears to be very strong. And so you proclaim the goodness of God and the power of God, and you say, I believe in Jesus. But some Christians, when there is sudden tension or pressure or force on your life, you snap, you break. All of us have had friends, most likely, that under the pressures of life have simply said, I'm no longer gonna follow Jesus. I'm no longer gonna trust Jesus. James will actually tell us that There are people that they believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. It can never be taken away. But when push comes to shove in the day-to-day realities of your life, at your job, in your neighborhood, with your family, as you experience the ups and downs and the joys and pains of life, there are people who really believe in Jesus but don't ever grow to maturity, to the settled and deep faith that we need in order to keep walking with Jesus and keep pursuing Jesus faithfully when things. get difficult. And so the book of James was written in part to help us chart a path, to follow Jesus in the real life circumstances we face all the time, to follow Jesus in every area of our lives, even when it's hard, even when there are external pressures that threaten to snap us or threaten to break us. The book of James is not primarily a book with a lot of theology or a lot of doctrine, although there is doctrine in it. There's even a couple of really doctrinally difficult portions of the book of James. But the book of James more is an intensely practical book that's going to say, when the rubber meets the road, when life gets hard, when you're facing opposition, when you're facing uncertainty, when the bank account is thin, how well are you going to walk with Jesus? James is going to say, if you know Jesus Christ, everything ought to change, The way you think about the life that you live, the way you use your money, the way you make decisions, the way you treat other people, the way you speak, the way you think, everything about your life ought to change in light of the reality that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death and sin, then there is no trial, there is no suffering, there is no circumstance that he can't carry you through to the other side. And so we're going to look at the book of James this semester as we learn what does it look like to deepen our faith, to become people whose external behavior and words matches the faith that we profess, this integrity of life, this wholeness of life. Before I dive into James one, let me just give you a little bit of background on the book of James. I'm I'm actually gonna read James one one uh, as we dive into this background. James one one, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad Greetings. So let me begin here and just give us a little bit of background. The author of the book is James, probably, almost certainly, James, the half-brother of Jesus. So there are a few Jameses in the New Testament. It was a common name. In Greek, it's actually the word Jacobus or Jacob. Uh, There was at least one James uh, that was one of the closest disciples of Jesus. You see him mentioned a lot in connection with Peter and John. Jesus would often gather up with Peter, James, and John. That's not the James who wrote this book, almost certainly not the same guy. The reason is because that James, we find, was martyred very early in the history of the Christian church uh, within a couple of years after Christ's death and resurrection. So this book was written just a little later than that. Uh, There's also James the Lesser, another one of Jesus' disciples, probably not that guy because this book is written with a level of authority and a level of uh, power that uh, probably isn't attributed to that James in the early church. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, is mentioned several times in the New Testament. He's the most likely candidate for who wrote this book. You may remember, after Jesus was born, he's born to the Virgin Mary. But then after that, Mary and Joseph got married, and they had several other kids, right? So at one point, Mark chapter 6, you see some people saying about Jesus, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus had some other brothers and sisters, one of whom was James. We see this guy, James, he actually shows up in Acts chapter 15 also as an early leader of the church in Jerusalem. What's interesting about him, we know that during Jesus' life, his brothers, his sisters, uh, they didn't really believe in him. And, and I kind of get it, right? If you grew up with somebody, it would be hard to make the mental transition to seeing that person as the Messiah and the Son of God. But after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, at least it seems that James and probably Jude, who most likely wrote the book of Jude, they believe in Jesus and they begin to lead in the early church. So here's James, the half-brother of Jesus, now writing this book to members of the early church, early Christians. Uh, He he says, it is written to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. This is probably a reference to Jewish Christians who are scattered around the Roman Empire, probably because of persecution. In the early church, if you were Jewish and you trusted in Jesus, you were in for opposition and persecution. You see that through the book of Acts. Uh, In Acts 11, we see that some of these Jews are dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire. So James is writing this book uh, to people who are separated from their homes, they're undergoing persecution, they're probably living in poverty, they're living in hard times. And he's writing this book to say, in the midst of what you're walking through, keep walking, keep going. And allow your faith in Jesus to deepen. Allow your hope in Jesus to be strengthened. So the recipients are Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire, probably written very early. We don't know exactly when it's written, but uh, some people believe the book of James is one of the earliest books of the New Testament, probably somewhere between 40 and 50. So really just a few years after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. Very, very early. And then uh, the theme, the main theme of this book really is that Jesus changes everything. If you know Jesus... That, that ought to change everything. And as I said, James doesn't give us a lot of information about you know, the Trinity or the deity of Christ or salvation by grace through faith, although all of that is, is in the book. But he's more concerned to say, if we really believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose from the dead, he defeated sin, he defeated death, and one day those who believe in him will have eternal life that cannot be taken away. If we really believe that, shouldn't that change the way we walk? Shouldn't that change the way we think? Shouldn't that change the way we speak? So James is going to show us a pathway to allowing the good news of Jesus to transform us. That's where we're headed in the book of James. Now, he starts right away in the second verse of the book with a really difficult theme. Follow with me. Verse 2, he says, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials.'" knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James dives right in. He does, there's no like, hey, how you doing, or anything along those lines. He just says, hey guys, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, as we've said, this is because the people James was writing to had hard lives. They were trusting in Jesus in a cultural context where that wasn't popular. They were separated from their homes, from their friends, in some cases from their families. They were away from everything they knew, surrounded in cases by people who didn't even speak the same language, so they were lonely and they were poor. In the the first century, we're going to see a lot in this book, by the way, about money and wealth. There were wealthy landowners who often would uh, oppress uh, poor people uh, poor people who work to the land. And so you have these people who are also probably working the land and so they're struggling with financial difficulty and religious persecution and isolation. And so James dives right in. He says, hey, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Here's what we're gonna see. Uh, James is gonna, gonna take us through this week. His main point in this first section of the book of James, he's gonna say, I want you to understand, suffering can strengthen our faith And focus our hope. Suffering can strengthen our faith and focus our hope. Uh, Notice he says uh, various kinds of trials, not just persecution. Not just poverty, although those would be included, but he says all kinds of trials, I want you to consider it joy. If you're having relational difficulty with a family member, or the bank account is low, or you've experienced a job loss, or a health crisis, or whatever it may be, various kinds of trials. The reason is, James understands something that I think we all all inherently understand, is that pain is an inevitable part of life. Right? Those who have seen the old movie, The Princess Bride, you'll you'll remember that famous quote, life is pain, princess. Anybody who tells you otherwise is selling something. Right? James understands that. All of us will face trial. And so he's not going to say that suffering is good. This is really important. He's not going to say, hey, suffering is something you want. It is a little uh, shocking that he begins with, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because at first you go, that sounds like that's written by a crazy person. Right? None of us have ever uh, had like a a job lost party, right? You lose a job and you're like, hey, let's celebrate. You don't do that. Only crazy people do that kind of thing. Only crazy people want to suffer, want to hurt. So this is important. We're going to see as we walk through, James is not saying that suffering is something we should seek or long for, nor is he saying that suffering is good. Suffering is a result of a fallen world. Nor is he saying that God inflicts suffering on us. In fact, he'll say just the opposite later in the chapter, that what God does is God gives good gifts. Here's what he's saying, though, that for the Christian, we can approach suffering with joy. Not because we're suffering, but because we know what suffering can produce within us. Because suffering can work something good in us, even if it is creating chaos around us. That suffering can transform us rather than destroy us. That we have the opportunity, if we know Jesus Christ, to respond to suffering in a way that doesn't snap us or break us in half but to respond to suffering in a way actually that deepens our trust in Jesus and also focuses our hope so that our hope is no longer in the things of this world, in our money, in our talent, in our cleverness, in our connections, whatever it may be, but only in Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior. So James begins this section by saying, when trials come, first of all, I want you to rejoice in God's purposes, rejoice in God's purposes. And again, he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, all kinds of trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith Produces endurance. Now, what we're going to see, this word for trials that he uses, he uses it here, he uses it throughout the chapter, it's actually a Greek word that can refer either to external trials, right? A, a flat tire, a job loss, relational challenges, whatever it may be. It can refer to external trials. It can also refer to temptation that's internal. This is going to be really important. Same Greek word. And the idea is that these external trials can also produce in us internal temptation to sin to disobey God to say I want to go my own way rather than God's way I want to get out of this trial by doing my own thing pursuing my own wisdom by violating God's values or God's commands that's the way I'm going to go in the midst of trial and temptation James is going to say these external temptations or trials can produce internal temptations But right now, he's talking about the external, right here at the beginning of the chapter. And he says, know this, that when you encounter those trials, the testing of your faith produces endurance. That is, as you endure trial, there's a certain grit that you develop, a certain ability to walk through these trials and bear up under them. Uh, Now, he's not not saying, hey, God is just going to launch more and more stuff on you to see at what point you snap. Right, he's not saying God's up there going, okay, I'm just going to keep piling, 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 piling. The point is not endurance. The point, he says in the next verse, is actually maturity. He says, so that your faith which is tested, it produces endurance. Then he says, the endurance has its perfect result. What's its result? That you may be two things, perfect or mature. This is the Greek word teleos, mature and complete. This, these are two related concepts. He says, when your faith is tested, first of all, it makes you mature. You grow up. You have a settled sense of trust in God's goodness, God's love, and God's power so that the next time you face a trial, you have a deeper trust in God because you say, I've seen something like this before. And best case scenario, you even look back to the death of Jesus and you say, if Jesus could endure the cross and come to the other side, and he's promised that I will rise again with him, then I can walk through this. You develop a deep and settled faith. That's maturity. Think about the process that happens as a child goes from immaturity to maturity. Those of you who maybe have toddlers in your home, you understand that to a toddler, every trial, every mishap is cataclysmic. Right? So if they get dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets instead of car-shaped chicken nuggets, that's a terrible event in their lives. They'll fall on the floor. They'll cry. They'll beat their fists on the floor. They'll scream. They'll refuse to eat it. They might throw the plate across the room. And, and you as a parent, you go, come on, it's not, it's not that bad, right? It's not that big a deal. That whether it's dinosaurs or, or cars, it's really bad for you either way. It doesn't really matter. Right, but you have to understand, to that toddler, actually at that moment, that may be literally the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Because they're 18 months old. They haven't been through much. But as they grow, by the time they're 35, hopefully you can place the dinosaur nuggets on their plate. (laughs) And they don't freak out. They say, oh, it's going to be okay. I've seen this before. I have maturity. I have a settled sense of calm. That's teleos, this maturity that says, I, I've seen God carry me through before, so I can trust him right now. But he also talks about completeness, holokleroi. It's a hard word to say uh, from the Greek language, this idea of integrity or completeness. And this, this idea, this word is, is this idea that the inside matches the outside. What I say I believe and what I believe in Jesus in my heart matches now how I speak and how I act and how I think, especially when I face trials, especially when I face difficulties. There's this wholeness, this integrity to my life. Maturity and completeness. He says this is at at its best what trials can do. Uh, Just this past week, uh, our second child turned 15 and so we began the process of uh, helping her learn how to drive. And so uh, she got the permit. Those of you who have gone through this process, uh, if you've only gone through it as a learner, your, your parents taught you or you drove in the car uh, with them, you may not fully understand the impact of what I'm about to say. Uh, but if you're the one sitting in the passenger seat while a new person learns to drive, it is terror-inducing. I don't care how responsible the child is. Here's why. The reason is because they really haven't experienced anything on the road. The problem isn't, and, and you'll, you'll say this to your kids, the problem isn't, isn't the, the new driver per se. It's all of the other drivers that they're going to encounter on the road, right? So under ideal conditions, so this is why you start in ideal conditions, right? You go in a parking lot. In fact, uh, there's a local driving school that uses our parking lot quite frequently, and I see their cars going, and they, they go up and down the aisles, and they, they use their blinker, and they turn, and they... they Practice maneuvering the car when there are no other cars so that when they then get out on the road, they're going to slowly work up to more and more difficult situations. Because what you want is then when they're going 50 miles an hour or 55 down Fitch and somebody suddenly pulls out in front of them without using their blinker, they know how to respond. If you're a new driver, an inexperienced driver, you might panic, you might freak out, that might cause a collision, or you're backing out at HEB, and somebody won't let you out, but they zip behind you at 50 miles an hour. If you're an experienced driver, you've seen that happen before. You know how to respond. You learn by undergoing the challenges. You deepen in your skill. So the next time you see this thing happen, you say, I've seen that before. This is what James is talking about, that suffering can work this depth of relationship in our lives if we allow God to work. It's not easy, and he's not saying suffering is good, and he's not saying we long for it, but he says as we walk through it, God can change us and transform us. 1 Peter says something very similar, verses 1 6 to 7. He says, In the midst of trials, he says, You greatly rejoice. Why? Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, Peter, like James, he's not saying when you undergo trials, you have to prove you really believe in Jesus. But instead, he's saying envision a a, a block of gold passing through the fire. And what happens? All the impurities melt away so that what you see on the other side is just the purest Gold Gold is refined by fire. Fishing line might snap under pressure. Gold is refined by fire so that what remains is pure. And Peter says that's how our trust in Jesus ought to be. As we undergo trials, the impurities fall off. Those areas where we trust in something other than Jesus to save us. Our cleverness, our bank account, our connections, our job, whatever it may be. So James and Peter here, they both say, you can rejoice, not because you're suffering, but because of what God can do in the midst of it. So he says, when trials come, rejoice in God's purposes. God wants to do something in your heart. God can even use pain to refine us. Rejoice in God's purposes. But then he's gonna go on, he's gonna say, I want you to understand, it's, it's not a given that trials are going to make us better, that trials are going to deepen our faith. Trials can also make you bitter and angry and unfaithful. And again, we've known people who have gone that pathway that in the face of trials, they just throw up their hands and they say, I'm walking away. Uh, Years ago, when I was the college pastor at Grace, I used to take a group of interns every week to minister at a local nursing home. And I would always encourage them, pay attention to the residents, because here's what you'll notice. By the time somebody is 70, 80, 90, whatever it may be, they're probably going to have one of two dispositions. Either they will be joyful because they have a deep faith in Jesus, and they're anticipating the day they're going to meet him, and the trials and the challenges of life have deepened their faith, or they're going to be angry and bitter and upset about everything you do. And what's amazing is toward the end of our lives, there's very little middle ground. We tend to deepen into these grooves. And so James is going to say, the way we respond in the midst of trial, that's going to determine which direction we go. And so watch what he says in verses 5 through 8. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man... Ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So there's a lot going on here, but but he says, here's what you need to do. In the midst of trial, he says, turn to God and say, God, I need your wisdom to navigate this. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to take the Word of God, to take the principles of God's Word, and apply them in real-life situations. To say, God, how do I honor you when I've been looking for a job for a year? God, how do I honor you when I've tried really hard to make this relationship work with my spouse and it seems to always be strained and difficult? God, how do I honor you when I might be facing a health crisis that could lead to my death? What do I do? What do I say? How do I navigate this? That's what wisdom is is we need that so that suffering doesn't destroy us but it transforms us so that it works what god wants us to have inside of our hearts and so james says you come before god in those moments and you ask him for wisdom and he says god gives generously and without reproach in other words god is always open-handed when it comes to wisdom he says he'll always say sure i will give you the wisdom that you need open-handed, and ready to give. This is sometimes hard for us to understand because as human beings, we're not always like this. We don't always like when people keep coming to us to ask for something. If you are a parent, maybe you've experienced this with a child. They keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming and you finally just get tired. You go, so many requests. I cannot fulfill them all. Please go to bed or to your room or somewhere else. We get tired. God never does. One commenter on this passage put it this way, God never tires of doing his people good. The more frequently we come to God, the more welcome we are. So James says, you're confused, you're hurting. Come to God and say, God, how am I going to navigate this? Now, he does add a, a caveat to that as we request God's wisdom, he adds a a caveat. He says, uh, don't come in doubt. Now, when you first read this, at least when I first read this, uh, that kind of worried me a little bit because sometimes I doubt, right? Sometimes I have doubts about, about God or maybe doubts about Jesus or whatever it may be. These doubts come into my mind. I don't always control them. I, I want to be clear. James is not talking here about those fleeting doubts that kind of come into our minds where you go, is all this true? Can I really trust the Bible? That's not really what he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. I, w- I want you to pay attention as I read the passage again. He says, he must ask in faith without any doubting, Why? For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, the Greek word, uh, the original word here for doubting, it's, it's this word diakrino. It really has this idea of wavering between two things, okay? So he says, if you have that kind of a mindset, you're just kind of driven and tossed by the wind. Wherever the winds carry you, that's where your life is going to go. And he says, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James isn't talking about fleeting uncertainty. He's talking about a settled attitude toward God, where you say, God, I'm in the midst of trial, and I need wisdom, and so I'm going to ask for wisdom, and give it to me, and maybe I'll do what you say. Or maybe I can find my own way out of this. Or maybe I can trust in how much money I have. Or maybe I can still rely on my friends. Or maybe this or maybe that. God, I might do what you want, except maybe if it costs me something. Uh, Maybe it's going to to cost me this job or my reputation as it is or uh, some amount of money. And so, God, I want to hear what you have to say before I decide if I want to do it. James says that type of attitude should not expect to receive anything from God. Uh, When I, uh, you know, back again, when I was a college pastor, sometimes there were college students who would come and ask for relationship advice, dating advice. And some of them really genuinely wanted to know, uh, how should I navigate this relationship? But there was a certain kind of student sometimes who would come and they were already in a relationship And they were head over heels. But deep down, they knew that there was a problem, right? Maybe the person wasn't a believer or or was prone to fits of anger or just didn't seem to really have any pathway forward for the future or the relationship itself. The person just didn't really seem serious about it. And, And that type of person sometimes would come and ask questions. What do you think about this type of relationship? What do you think about this person? And so you would give your input. You would give your advice. And then they'd go do what they wanted to do anyway. Because they didn't want wisdom. They wanted confirmation of what they already planned to do. And James says, when we come before God with that attitude, you ought not expect you'll receive his wisdom. As one person has said, God is not in the habit of giving his wisdom to the merely curious. So he says, when you're in the midst of trials and tribulations, what you do instead is you fall on your knees and you say, God, I cannot navigate this on my own. I might think I know what is right, but I need your wisdom. Where do we get God's wisdom? We get God's wisdom first and foremost from his word. I say, God, show me in your word the principles and the wisdom I need to navigate this, and I will place myself under the authority of the word of God. We get his wisdom from the body of Christ, from other men and women filled by the spirit of God who know the word of God, who can speak into our lives. We get his wisdom through prayer. And God says, the one who comes and asks me for that kind of wisdom, I always will give it generously and without reproach. Because what God wants us to do in the face of these trials is to deepen our trust in Jesus. To say, I'm gonna trust in nothing And nobody else. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then I trust him with my future. And I trust him with today. So we rejoice in God's purposes. We request God's wisdom. And then thirdly, he says, in the midst of trials, we want to remember God's perspective. This is where the hope part of the passage comes in. He says suffering can work something inside your heart. It can deepen your trust in Jesus, but it also can focus your hope because when all of the other things around you begin to fall apart, as we sang earlier, when everything around me is shaken, I know that I have a firm foundation. Look at verses 9 through 12. James says but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, this is interesting because James has been talking about trials and difficulties and wisdom, and and all of a sudden, it seems like he takes a hard turn, and he starts talking about money, and you're like, wait, 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 what are we doing? Why are we suddenly talking about money? Again, remember, he's writing to a group of people who some of them were experiencing financial hardship. But some of them weren't. Just like today's church, there were people who were poor who trusted Jesus. There were people who were rich who trusted Jesus. Both groups were inclined to look to something other than Jesus to save them. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you go, hey, times are tough. I don't know what to do. But worst case scenario, I've still got the retirement account, so I will be saved. Worst case scenario I've still got some connections. I've still got my family. I've still got whatever. Worst case scenario, I've got a fallback so that I don't have to fully trust in God. Or maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, you're undergoing trials and you open up that Bank of America account or whatever and you despair. And you say, woe is me. I don't have enough. I've been in both places in my life. Uh, When I was uh, in my mid-20s, Shannon and I were newly married. Money was very tight sometimes to the point that there was uh, quite often more month than there was money. And so I remember, and this is, I'm not proud of this, but at some point in that era, somebody showed me this website where you could go, and every day they would give away $10,000 to somebody. Now, there were probably like millions of people trying to win this $10,000 every day, but you would spin this little wheel on the screen, and the wheel would go around. And if it landed on $10,000, then you would win the $10,000. I spent more time than I care to admit watching that little wheel go around thinking, you know, $10,000 would solve my life. It would make everything the way it's supposed to be. It would bring me shalom. $10,000, man, what would that do for me? I didn't ever win the $10,000. I did, however, win a two-year subscription to the magazine Us Weekly, where I could open up and read about the lives of people who did have much more money (laughs) than I did and feel sad. Right, but what was my problem? I thought, if only I had the money I need, my life would be solved. You can also have the opposite problem. I've got more than enough. My life is fine. Here's what James wants you to understand. Your problem is not paying the mortgage. That's not what your real problem is. Your real problem is not that you are not smart enough to figure this out. Your real problem is not primarily whatever... Temporary trials in front of you, you know what your real problem is? Your real problem is that you are going to die. And if you die apart from Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity away from Him. Your real problem is so much bigger than you think it is. But the solution is so much greater than you can imagine. That we don't trust in the bank account, we trust in a risen Savior. We don't trust. And how smart we are, how clever we are, how connected we are, how charismatic we are, how much money we have in the bank, how good our health is, how fast we can run. We don't trust in anything other than that Jesus Christ took death in our place and rose again and he solved our real problem. And so James says, look, if you're poor, you don't need to worry about the fact that nobody cares who you are and you're not important and you don't have any money. Don't worry about that. You boast in your exaltation in Jesus Christ because as Jesus rose from the dead, you will one day rise from the dead with him and you will have more riches than you can even fathom. But if you're rich, you don't boast in that money. You boast in your identification with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because your money will fade. You can't take it with you. Psalm 49 says, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Your wealth won't save you. Your smarts won't save you. Your friends won't save you. Only Jesus can save you. Which is why talking about this same topic in First Peter, Peter says you have to understand. If you believe in Jesus, there is an inheritance, a source of wealth that is permanent, that cannot be taken away, that inflation cannot touch. Because it's secured for you by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain, here it is, an an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, Peter and James both say, if you know Jesus Christ, even as you're undergoing trial and uncertainty and difficulty, here's what you have to remember, that your hope is not here, your hope is with Jesus. Your foundation cannot be shaken and you have an inheritance that cannot be taken away. And so you focus your hope 100% 100% on Jesus Christ. You seek his wisdom. You trust his purposes. You focus your hope on him. And James wraps up this section by saying, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who Love him. This is one of many references in the New Testament to crowns that are received as rewards. We saw the crown of life, in fact, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And it's the same type of discussion where those who endure suffering well receive the crown of life. There are several different crowns mentioned in the New Testament. All of them are seen as, as rewards for faithfulness, or as James put it, a life that is approved, that is lived in keeping with the way God wants us to live, that there are these rewards when we come face-to-face with Jesus. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, everyone who competes in the games, this would have been the Olympic Games of the first century, everyone who competes exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable Wreath, but we an imperishable. In other words, they would discipline themselves and they would train and they would work so that they could win a race and receive a garland wreath that said, You're a winner, you're approved, everybody would clap, and that would be the prize. And he says, People people work their whole lives for that. It's true in our culture as well. The Olympic gold medal, people work their whole lives for it. He says, They do it to receive an award, a crown that is perishable. Ours is imperishable. It cannot be taken away because what we're, what we're moving toward, and, and, and we see this as we endure trials, what we're seeking. I really think these crowns ultimately, what they really represent is the approval and the praise of Jesus Christ because that's always the context in which they're mentioned. The crown itself, it's not that you just get a nice trinket to hang up in your heavenly apartment. But it is that you get to hear Jesus Christ say, well done. Well done. When you endured trial, you did not allow it to break you. You didn't walk away. You didn't give up. But you allowed it to deepen your faith and to focus your hope. And you drilled down and focused your hope only on Jesus Christ. Well done. We read this passage earlier, but look at how Peter ends this. He says, after your faith has been tested, notice he says, even though it's been tested by fire, here's what we want to happen. It may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do not underestimate or undervalue how important it will be on the day we meet Jesus to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to guess there are some of you in this room that you grew up with parents who never said to you words like, I'm proud of you. Well done. You did a good job. And there's something in your soul that longs for that because it's lacking. There are others of you that you heard it a lot And you can remember specific times, this is true of me, I can remember specific times in which my mom or my dad said to me, good job, well done, I'm proud of you, and I cherish those words. In our family, one of the things we do when somebody has a birthday is at dinner on their birthday, we offer them verbal blessings. Here are some things I love about you. Here's why I'm glad you're in our family. Here's some things that you do well, and we, we give them these words. You know, it's interesting, even as kids grow up, and sometimes they're like, don't make me the center of attention. Don't talk about me. Don't look at, you know, whatever. I look at their eyes, even the adults in the family, when they're receiving praise and approval. There's something in our hearts that says, I need that, I long for that. What James tells us is that enduring trials well gives us an opportunity to hear that approval from Jesus Christ, our Savior. And on that day, nothing will matter more. So he says, I want you to remember God's perspective. When trials come, you rejoice in God's purposes, request God's wisdom, remember God's perspective. Again, suffering can strengthen our faith and it can focus our hope in Jesus Christ alone. Let me ask a couple of questions by way of reflection. One, how deep truly is your trust in Jesus? Do you find yourself wavering or about to snap in the face of trial and difficulty? As we walk through the book of James, he's gonna show us how to develop this grit that we need to walk well. If you don't yet know Jesus Christ The only way to have this type of hope, this type of faith that that God will prevail and that you will have eternal life even beyond the suffering of this world, the only way to have that type of confidence that your suffering is temporary is to believe in Jesus Christ. That only he died for your sins and rose from the dead so you can have eternal life. If you know Jesus Christ, How well do you walk in the face of trial? Do you fall on your knees and ask for his wisdom or do you trust in something else? Where's your hope? What are you hoping in? If it's something other than Jesus, just know that it's not going to hold you up under pressure. It's going to snap. But if it's Jesus Christ, he can't be broken, he can't be defeated. Your inheritance and your hope is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. Where is your hope? Will we trust him day by day to lead us through? Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to know you and to walk with you. Thank you for eternal life. We pray we would hear your voice and obey your voice. We pray that we would soften our hearts and and receive your wisdom and go where you want us to go and say what you want us to say and do what you want us to do. But Father, we praise you most of all because in Jesus Christ, we know we have an eternal hope that cannot be taken away even in the face of difficulty, pain, and trial. Give us strength, endurance, give us maturity and completeness as we follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.